uh, I'm very excited for people before my co-introer speaks is that it's not Emily, guys. <laughs> I mean, I'm not excited that it's not Emily. Sorry, that came off wrong. I'm excited to have a new person intro with us, um, Jennifer Morgan, Director of Programming. Welcome to the introductions. Thank you so much. Are we still doing the Happy New Year bit? Uh, I mean, I was going to say that I felt like it was getting old with Emily, like a little tired because I had told her Happy New Year like three times, but it is the last week of January. So Jen, happy, happy New Year. Happy New Year. Let's get in while we can. I know. I got one more week, kids. It's a good bit. Um, today we are releasing Surreality is a New Reality, and you are here. You can come anytime, P.S., because you're <laughs> responsible for like 99% of the things that we are introing, but this one particularly came out of your brain, so I thought you could say why you're obsessed with this. Um, yes. So a lot of my favorite shows of last year, 2022, 2022, um, had this sort of theme of surreality and sort of breaking conventions and like telling things uh in ways that I just thought were very unconventional um and the two people that we have on this panel uh Valerie Armstrong from Kevin Can Fuck Himself she does encourage you to say the word Yes. yes the proper title um, and Silas Howard, <clears throat> who is director, executive producer from Dickinson, um, and lots of other amazing things. Um, they come from these two shows that are like very tricky mm-hmm. to navigate, um, and that they break sort of all the rules. Uh, yeah, they break all the rules. Yep. Um, they break historical rules. They break formal rules. They switch between you know multicam, single cam. Um, and so I really wanted to hear from them yeah. uh, how you navigate that. I mean, I was ex- I watched the first season of Dickinson. I'm so sorry I did not finish it, but I always thought that it was very cool what they were doing with like her her mind, like her reality. Um, I did finish last year the final season of Kevin Can Fuck Himself, mm-hmm. and I do. So I can speak more to that one. But like I always thought, what, however you define, sometimes I get lost in like what is actually like when people talk about tone, what is actual tone? What is mm-hmm. the surreal part? But the format of Kevin Can Fuck Himself with the like switching between the two, a drama and a television sitcom. Um, I was really impressed how into that I was. That seems like something that I can't even imagine having the idea for and then actually making a reality in that show and it all the way to the end worked for them in a way that I wish more people had watched the show actually all the way to the end but because did she only want two seasons um they tell her she got one more season I know she wrote to an end yeah I I think they found out kind of late that it wouldn't okay it wouldn't have more than two um but she talks a little bit about it in the panel about like there were a lot of conversations about how long do you keep this up for? Like how long does it take to reach the conclusion of what they're like trying to get at? Um, And so I think it is a very tough pitch Mm -hmm. to walk in and be like (laughs) two shows. Yeah. (laughs) Two shows (laughs) in one show. And uh, the other thing that she gets into a lot is sort of like as the creator of something that's like so, such a, a high concept show like this, like so specific to you have yeah. to be the one that like knows in your gut that it's going to work and yeah. you have to just keep telling people like it's going to, it's going to work. Like if we can do X, Y, Z, like this will translate Yeah, because it's very hard to be like, this is going to be funny and this is going to be like a Breaking Bad S drama sure. and like the two are going to come together and it's yeah. going to make sense. Well, because you've got to then tell people what they're doing. Like I think the two things that stand out as how they were achieved in the show something as simple as lighting Mm -hmm. changes the entire vibe of the exact same set like Mm -hmm. lighting and like the camera angles and everything else so it shows you how specific which you already know but like a sitcom looks like Mm -hmm. and then really talking to your actors about how they should be a certain way in one scene and a different way in another and it whatever the words are it's just the 
the way that you are portraying those words and making sure people know what world they're in, in yeah. whatever the scene is, because I can imagine getting confused. And putting together a writer's room that can write both sitcom and drama, yeah. like in the same sort of yeah. breath. What were some of the shows that, because I know we tried, this would have been a full length panel, like you had other ideas, like what were some of the shows not on it? Yeah, um, there are just a lot of weird scheduling conflicts with this one. Um, a lot of people like wanted to do it, couldn't do it for various reasons. But um, blind spotting was a big one that we mm -hmm. talked about. Um, that show really breaks form in mm -hmm. some super cool ways, um, with specifically with like music and dance. Yep. Um, uh, Evil is another one, which is just the most batshit show on TV. <laughs> like it's. <laughs> Uh, you never quite know what's happening and what's not happening. And I like, guess good fight would also be that, right? Yes, I mean, the yeah. Kings basically do do that in general. The Kings are excellent at this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they're excellent at everything, but yes. like they, they really like to play in this mm -hmm. sort of space of like perception and whose point of view you're in and mm -hmm. how it's sort of like the absurdity of real life, like making that like very literal. Right. And then Yellow Jackets is another one that kind of did it to like a, like a lower pitch, but like, there are moments of that show where you are not sure what the What's reality is. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, I guess at the very uh, base of it is like, if the viewer is unsure of what is real, yeah, then that's going to tiptoe into this space. Like yeah. if it's not clear that you should just believe that the thing is happening. Um, and Yellow Jackets definitely is like, is it the island? Is it the people? Is it even like know? euphoria? Like yeah. everything, having, yeah, yeah. having it be so heightened. Yeah. Like you're not sure if you're experiencing like, the event or the emotion of it right. and like what that sort of means for the characters. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that we still did it. One of the things I love about micro, the introduction, introduction of micro panels to the festival is when we can't get four different people or like a longer form conversation that we can pivot to do two people talking about it so that the conversation is still had. And I love that these are the two on it. Cause these are two of the, shows that we're doing it in the biggest ways so to have the writer creator and then a director ep mm -hmm. um have the conversation with it so i think we should let them talk about it now but it is moderated by emily moss wilson who's also a writer director which is always a good point of view too she does an amazing job with this panel yeah. I, like she's a great moderator so guys listen to this and then go watch kevin can fuck himself and dickinson and then tell us what favorite surreality show uh we should include next year enjoy let's get into it <laughs> <laughs> so i guess my i get uh, so i'll preface it with this so this is going to be a conversation a, a lot about you know devices used in storytelling obviously both dickinson and your show have a very specific points of view and also use multiple different devices to, to tell their stories so because it's just us as well i'd like to not be super general i'd like to really kind of go into the minutiae of it if we can um i guess i want to start with you valerie since this was kind of something that came from a kernel of an idea and then now it's you know watchable and a thing that we all love but how did, where did this come from? What was that kernel? And tell us about that like initial spark. Uh, so I was listening to a podcast. Uh, I think, I'm pretty sure it was Jana Varney's and it, it's called the JV Club. And it's just women talking about what it was like going through high school. And it's, it was my like Bible and I was 28. Um, <laughs> But uh, there were two women on there. I feel like one of them was maybe Casey Wilson, mm -hmm. and they were talking about pilot season and how they still go out for the sitcom wife every year auditioning. Like, I was like, I would offer any of these women Absolutely. anything. And I was also an assistant, not able to offer anything to anybody at the time. <laughs> but That's um, not true. <laughs> no, I could offer coffee. I was <laughs> great at coffee. I was so good at coffee. If any of you are wanting to be a writer, be so good at coffee. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, uh, and so I was like, "That sucks." And they talked about how they always are told by their agents, like, "We really want a funny woman for this one." And then they get the sides, and the sides are all like, "What do you mean? They're just setup, setup machines for the men." And I thought, "Well, that sucks even more." And then I read that Aaron Hayes was being killed off of Kevin Can Wait, oh. and I was like, "Hell no! <laughs> Where's her show?" I want to see more about her. How did she end up there? And then the first like format switch popped into my head. Mm -hmm. 
and I texted my brother, who's here today, and Bro? said, <laughs> and said, can you imagine like Kevin can wait, but like the wife steps into the kitchen and then it's like Breaking Bad? <laughs> I said, is that just a scene? Can that be a whole pilot? And now it's, we have two seasons of it. It's crazy. <laughs> and I sent that text, I looked it up, I sent that text, it'll be five years ago in two days. Wow. Which is crazy. So thank you for not saying like, eh. <laughs> but you know what's so cool is that like that that idea, that five years ago idea, is what ended up it's on almost, screen. It's almost the same. Like That's... I I can't say enough about a network that didn't beat me down and take away everything I loved about it. It changed a lot, as it should have. I wrote it alone in my pajamas, and when it becomes a bigger idea with other people, it should get better. And it, I think it really did, but that, that format switch is the first format switch of the show. And it is like, it, it is what I wanted it to be. Yeah, that's, that's, what else could I ask for? That's amazing. And, and also, you know, what I love about that show, especially like ju just where the pilot ends, is like it's, it leaves you, it, it, it inevitably leaves you wanting more because A, you're like, what did I just watch? But B, like, it's like you, speaking of surreality versus reality, I wanted to know immediately, like, what, what is, which one's real? Which one's fake? Are they both fake? Are they both real? Like, and I feel like that hook, you know, it, it even kind of continues on, like, you start knowing what's real, but then you keep questioning it. To me, to me, that it's all real. Like, a, a decision I made very early on was, like, it's not in her head. She is not crazy. It is not a show within a show. It is just the way this world is presented. Mm -hmm. And I think if you make that decision, you also then have to make, you have to orient the viewer with rules. Yes. So I call Kevin, Neil, and his dad, Pete, uh, sitcom catalysts. If they are on camera, it will be a multicam three camera sitcom. That's where these guys get to live. It's like a privilege because they don't have to deal with any consequences. They get to live those sitcom plots and have it be at everyone else's expense their whole lives until, I don't know if anybody watched it, but the last episode, yeah. last episode, Neil loses that privilege yep. and he's going to be in single camera this season. Yep. And he is Alex Bonifer blew me away this year. He's he's so great oh in the second gosh. season. Yeah, he yeah. literally crashes into yep. the other world. And it was so much fun to shoot. It was so, <laughs> like, the day that we shot the single camera part, our playback guy, Frank, stitched together the multicam and what we had just shot, like, in 30 seconds. And I was like, oh, thank God it works. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be good. That's awesome. So you brought up rules, which Silas, you and I were talking about. And on Dickinson, there are several different yeah. storytelling devices yeah. between her writings and then, like, you know, the modern takes on things and where she goes. So I guess just speak uh, a little bit, especially just for people who maybe haven't seen sure. that particular show, on which ones they are and how they function on your, that show. So uh, Dickinson is a, is a half-hour comedy uh, set in the world of Emily Dickinson uh, in the, eight, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. In the 1860s. And uh, the rules of the world are the past is present, so there's a, you know, sort of anachronistic quality to the show. But a lot of the characters and the details are facts from mm -hmm. Emily's life, so it's a real mix. And, uh, and the other rules are we are in Emily Dickinson's mind, so anything goes. There's, you know, a bumblebee that she's talking to and dancing with when they have a big like party night where they do opium. And uh, in the opera episode I did, there's this whole meeting that she has with the, the opera singer that still, you know, you don't know if that's happened or not or part of it happened. So it really navigating this space that is where she lived in her mind because she, you know, didn't get out of the house much <laughs> as, as it was told. But it's reimagining her as this teen goth obsessed, you know, with death. And death is played by Wiz Khalifa. And, uh, so cool. and he's really awesome to work with. And he does straight up smoke a joint. On this. <laughs> COVID's like, he can't do that. I'm like, you tell him. <laughs> but, um, but he's like really, really great to work with. And uh, yeah, it is looking at, so this third season was, the first season was uh, the patriarchy stopping her, her father. And the second season was, what if that's not in your way, do you, you, know, do you stop yourself? And, and celebrity and the idea of being seen. And then this season is uh, the Civil War, so it's all about the war in the, in the home, but it has a storyline 
because uh, Emily Dickinson corresponded with this Colonel Higginson, who was an avid abolitionist. They corresponded for 20, 20 years, and wow. he was a big um, per, you know, influence on in saving her work. And he was the colonel of the first all-black troop that fought against the South. And so we have, because the show also has humor in it, you know, we have all of these young comedic actors and sort of like, again, pushing against the, the rules and allowing humor to be in the midst of trauma, you know, and having that kind of tonal shift. So yeah, there's a lot of weird rules, not rules. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, yeah, that's, that's the setup for it. What I, I loved uh, it, by the way. I saw it every episode, at least, at least twice. Awesome. Yeah. What, what, I, what I find like so surprising is that like, that's a lot going on, right? And, and similarly in, in your show as well. I mean, it's just a, but you have to get everybody on board with all of that or else it can fall apart. It's like it can't just be you abiding by the rules or following the rules and you've got all these different departments that you've got to kind of like mandate this stuff to. So I guess maybe just talk about the, like when you have very specific you know, stylistic things. Like, how do you go about, like, what's the process of collaboration like? Uh, for us, it was finding department heads who looked at their department as the most important in the show <laughs> it, in a great way. Um, we had people who understood the concept and applied it to their role in ways that I couldn't have told you they should have because that's not my department. I want to hire people who are great at their jobs trust them to do it. You know, it's like when I'm in editing sometimes, I don't, I don't say like, can we, sometimes I do, but, so <laughs> it's a, but there are times where I'm like, this is what I want to feel in this scene. Can you, I, I trust you to go do that. And if you hire the right people, they will go do that. Like I shouldn't, I couldn't have told you that up close, Allison's sweaters uh, have holes in them, like little ones that you wouldn't see in multicam. Uh, I couldn't have told you how to convert my multicam set to single cam, but my production designer did it. And the first time I stepped into that living room as a single camera set, I was like, this is exactly what I wanted. It's the same place, but it feels like every living room I went in as a kid, not a set anymore, but like I recognize everything. And having people who, you know, hair makeup was incredible. It's like on multi-cam multi days, those ladies are done up and look great. And then single cam days, you are up close and it doesn't look like we've changed it. It just looks like you get a better view of it. And uh, watching all of that sort of happen was one of the great like joys of my life uh, because the development process is like, you gotta believe in the vision of the show when no one else has it. And sticking to this one at times was hard because I trust I trusted it worked in my head, um, but we we didn't have a pilot. And if any show should have had a pilot, it was this one. <laughs> <laughs> and that first day in the editing room, I was like, oh, thank God. Okay, okay, it does, yeah, yeah, that's that's what I thought. Uh, but yeah, I think it's um, if if you have a lot going on, if you have a big idea you find people who are excited by a challenge, not people who are like journeymen who, who just feel like kind of showing up and getting paid. If you want people who get excited by like a new creative challenge. Yeah, definitely you want a lot of people that are yes, not yes in a bad dysfunctional you know, way of supporting people when they shouldn't be, but not yes men, but really, oh yeah, here's a, here's a problem, there's a solution, let's find it, you know, because if, if you're afraid of problems, then film is going to be a miserable <laughs> ride. It's just problem after problem. And, uh, but then there's always a solution, and I love that part of it. Um, and I also liked what you said about, God, the first thing that you said, now it just escaped my mind. Oh, it was about the setting up the show. Well, it'll come back to Hiring me. good department heads? I don't know. I've, I've had Mezcal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's in your cups? Uh, like, hey, you have some sodas? <laughs> um, okay, so it'll come back to me. But... Um, I was just thinking about setting up the rules of the world and you know yeah. Dickinson yeah it definitely is one where you have to give people permission to laugh in places that they shouldn't yeah. you know and so that's that's something like even my movie that I'm finishing right now is a you know it's a sort of mean girls meets sixth sense so she she sees dead people she helps them cross over and um, it's really about a friendship and uh, and about transforming loss and uh, so I needed to have I need a chuckle at the funeral and a laugh at the scene where the head cheerleader dies and that's a, <laughs> that's a tough thing to pull off um, but it's like, it's because it's gallows humor, it's not laughing at, it's sort of the way that we all survive, you know, yeah. and I feel like 
as part of a you know a group of people you know trans LGBTQ you know it's our stories are often told like here's the trauma um, we'll take the fun stuff you know the art you know but you can keep that trauma but uh, but you know trauma and humor I think always just go so well together they're usually a byproduct and so yeah I think that that setting up those rules are really important and having yeah it, you know being willing to to push but you have to let the audience know soon it feels like yeah and something I realized helps with that incredibly is music um, I, I asked for a certain song to play over the last scene of the show uh, before I saw the editor's cut, and she, I, I just wanted this end bit that is kind of creepy and fun, uh, but really, I think, poignant, And uh, but she put the whole song over it, and the beginning of the song is, like, jaunty, and I was like, wow, that's not right, uh, that's not what I wanted, but also somehow, like, that scene is coming off as fun, and it shouldn't, like, I had to, uh, we took it out, but... It is crazy how yeah. a, a little bit of like levity in music makes the tone completely different and allows for yeah. so much leeway and humor. It's, it does, yeah. yeah. And if, it, if it's a movie you want to have a little more, you know, pensive moments, you can put that, you know, do the opposite. I think counterpoint music is a great way, oh, yeah. you know, um, to get, eke out more from a scene. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, in the pilot of, of my show, uh, there's a fantasy sequence where she stabs her husband in the neck with a piece of glass and blood is everywhere and it seemed so dark. And then we added like just percussion over it. And then what really what really made it funny was we cut to uh, Mary Hall's Imboden who plays Patty just clapping. <laughs> and it, all of a sudden it was like very funny. And I was like, oh, this is what I want the show to be because I, I laugh Unfortunately, at every funeral I go to, <laughs> not because I think it's funny, but because I am so desperate, I think, for some levity that, like, my brother and I were at a funeral once. I'm not proud of this, but um, uh, we are not churchgoers. Uh, we never really spent any time there, and it was, our, I think, our high school English teacher, and um, the office was really big at the time, and thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. We both thought that's what she said without, <laughs> without saying it. We both knew and started laughing and couldn't stop and got looks. And I, that, is how, that is how I describe the humor of the show. Like, that is how I want the show to feel like I'm laughing. And I can't believe I just laughed at that. But honestly, like, that is more common, I think, than you assume that it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that's why it ends up ultimately working and connecting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people laugh people because like they're they, nervous, right? Yes, you know? And yes. it's sort of a release. And, yeah. and so, yeah, it makes sense. Talk, Valerie, talk about the, like, there's there's almost like a, like a uh, going even inside a secondary layer when we're in single cam. And then she has this, like, fantasy element with Kevin. Was that always a part of it? Or, like, how did that kind you of know, become a thing? The, the original pilot I wrote was so different, and I'm so glad that we made the changes we did. I mean, Allison, like, knew she was miserable, knew that she hated her life and her husband, but just, like, resigned. She was a lot more like Patty. She just, like, resigned herself to it. And she was, like, doing coke on the streets at night to survive and then found out she was pregnant and that that's, like, the thing she couldn't deal with. Like, she wouldn't resign her kid to this life. Uh, and that changed over the course of time and it, what we came to instead, which I think is right, is like this woman hopes, she still has hope for so much and she has really internalized what she has been told she should want. Everything is about what she thinks she should want and what will make her happy. And to her that is through Kevin. Just and I, what fascinated me was what is the psychology of that woman and what is her past that made her think that? And so to get at that, what really helped was looking at this like idealized version of her future. And for the pilot, it's Kevin looking different, having a, you know, in a suit, in a nice kitchen, and she knows how to do her hair suddenly, and like wears a bold red lip. And uh, it's only through the course of the, the pilot that I, I really wanted to mess with that image and get to this place where she idealizes her, her future in that last fantasy sequence, but she is, she looks how she looks, she is where she is, and her fantasy is killing her husband, mm -hmm. not, uh, not changing him. And the sort of basis of the show is that saying, like, men get married to women thinking they'll stay the same, women get married to men thinking they'll change. Uh, and this is just like a very passive-aggressive, very um, 
you know, exaggerated version of that <laughs> phrase. Um, and I think that that's actually not even what she wants, but it's something that she can look at and move towards in a goal that actually gives her some agency for the first time in her life. And that's, that's sort of intoxicating, yeah. is like actually doing something for herself. And in weirdly, in trying to kill her husband, she builds a life around it that suddenly she didn't have before. Um, and I think that that's sort of the inner life I want to bring out more. Yeah, it, you're watching an awakening, yeah. which is very exciting to see and to I watch. Hope so. it I is. We, we really we tried. It <laughs> is. So um, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I want to kind of talk about transitions, like the transitions in and out of things and both shows and the kind of the stylisticness of that, as well as your relationship with your DP, because I feel like that's a very you know, symbiotic relationship on every show, but certainly when you're coming in and out and like, you know, oh, yeah. doing these match cuts and this and that. So I guess just speak a little bit about you and your DP's relationship. I mean, I guess it changes and, you know, even in my features, I work with different DPs, sure. um, but in, in TV you definitely do. And the thing I learned, like when you're doing features, indie, you know, is mainly what I did until this last one, the DP has tons of time and they want to just sit down and go through every shot and you're just like, oh God. But uh, it's great because when you're in TV, nobody does that, it's all on you and you've got to get the coverage and you've got to know and sometimes you got to push a very tired DP to get it. And um, and that's, you know, and you want to make sure you're not doing too much, you know, you want the options, but yeah. So I think that it's really what you said about uh, what you want somebody to feel uh, or an audience to feel when, you know, when I was teaching film at various places, that's one one of the things that I would use for my own work and to, to pass on is when I'm when I'm working on a scene, you know, what do I want people to feel instead of what what do I want them to know? And uh, the the DP on Dickinson, I remembered I was trying to describe this shot, and he was like, "Well, just tell me what you want it to feel like." And it was a great shorthand. Um, I pull references all the time, visuals. I'll do just Google Slides, and I'll pull them just because it's weird. Even I've I've worked in film for a while, and you know, I went and studied it as well. But it's like the, the idea of an e extreme close-up, the idea of a certain angle, it's really a visual just helps, like lock it in. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think that that's another way that I work with the DP is to give them references that are in a visual language so that we're not getting caught up in the, the technical language of it all. And, uh, yeah. And, and the, yeah. do you have to, I mean, obviously you're presenting that to him. Would you also present that to whatever writers are on set or producers are on set or do, are they seeing that sort of at the monitor while it's happening? Oh, kind no, of what's I, that? I, I would do that with um, the show runner um, or the producing writer that sure. might be working with me. With Dickinson, I was in, for the last season, I was in the writer's room through the whole season through, and I was on the whole season of uh, season three um, overseeing. Uh, with the rest of the directors and stuff, so yeah. But I did show those to, you know, it depends on the show. Sometimes the showrunner's really busy, you just show it to the producing writer. Uh, but yeah, and I and you're always just trying to steal time yeah. on TV, you're just trying to grab. I just reach out to all the actors and reach out to the DP and you just try to get any minute offset that you can because it's gold and you just want to build that trust because then you try stuff that might not work. As my goal is always to try something that doesn't work. If we can get, you know, cool. get what we need first and then fuck up a take. <laughs> What about you and when the DP on your show? Um, I got very lucky. My DP, I uh, have, I guess I kind of know, I've known him since I was born. Uh, we needed someone and uh, our DP dropped out over COVID uh, before we started shooting. And um, my aunt married uh, my DP's brother. And uh, that was when I was a kid, and it was always like, oh, Adrian's in movies. Go talk to Adrian at, like, block parties. And, you know, he was a PA who did not want to talk to me. I was 19 years younger than he was. But I'd watched his career, and he had just done such beautiful work. He had just done the second season of Glow, which I had my, my favorite shot of 2018, which is Betty Gilpin sitting on a floor of her empty house singing Home on the Range. <laughs> and I was like, come, please, please come to our show. And he had this beautiful presentation and really got both sides and, you know, hadn't done multicam, but I'd rather have a single camera DP who hasn't done multicam learn that than the other way around. Um, and he just had such a wonderful artistic way of looking at things. And we have to match very closely uh, those transitions. And that means it's not just on him, it's on every department. To, uh, set deck became incredibly important. It's like, well, where was the hamburger pencil holder? 
and it because the slightest change it's such a big swing that to to really keep people on board you have to make it seamless because the rest isn't it's jarring on purpose so our script supervisor was incredible uh, we had two and they were both very they took it very very seriously um hair makeup you know it's mm -hmm. just it's all about continuity and making things uh because that way when lighting and camera angles and you jump line like that way you buy that um and so i and this year we bumped up our a camera operator to dp and uh, her name is shannon madden and she's fantastic and um we she really knew the look of the show you know and and knew the language knew what we wanted to go go for so that was invaluable um and i think you know we did not reinvent the wheel on multicam we tried to make a straight ahead sitcom we all love sitcoms in the writers room like we didn't want to look down on it or make fun of it we wanted we truly tried to make a good, funny sitcom because if you're winking at it and making fun of it, I don't know how I ask you to watch that for half of the show. Uh, so we wanted to do all of that kind of by the book and that meant when we were in single camera that we could, you know, have it be dark. Mm -hmm. We love when stuff is a little dark and we don't see people's faces all that well because that is so different from multicam. Um, extreme wides, making sure that it's clear that we're outside, anything to differentiate it from that sitcom, we really tried to identify in, and use. You kind of brought up the idea uh, in this producing director role, bringing in other directors and sort of obviously they have watched the show and whatnot, but they're stepping in and pretty quickly going to be shooting your show. There's not a lot of prep time when you come on as a, you know, a one-off episodic director. So talk through maybe like, because for these folks, like tone meetings and kind of like what that process is when you are like moving on to the next episode and it's somebody brand new to your show coming in. Uh, yeah, well, it was a, it was a, eye-opening moment because, you know, I'm often the director that comes in and, you know, I do my thing and hopefully it goes well, but it's like throwing a party in somebody else's house, you know, you're just <laughs> like, you know, you're not exactly part of the, the family yet, but, um, but, you know, always there's that over-managing, you know, person on set, and uh, I wasn't that, but I could really understand why, because they, these were things that I had worked on and developed and, and in some cases shot, because we'd block shot the, some of the season. And, uh, but I, I was aware of it, and it was, uh, I had a good relationship with the director, so I was just like, what do you think about this idea? You know, I didn't step on any toes, but I could feel what, what often writers must feel when they have all these directors coming in. And I'm a collaborator, but some of those old-time directors aren't, and I just don't know how they got away with it, because it's like, the people that create the show know the show. They know all the details of the whole season. I really focus on, well, that, but also my episodes. And so, so yeah, that was interesting, but it was also a great opportunity to get people in through the gates because the truth is Hollywood talks a big talk about wanting to make change but it's really hard to get them to do the work and so uh, that's just something they got to catch up on <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah so that was a great opportunity to get to bring on directors some some it was their first TV uh, directing job but they had done other work features and they were just great fit for the show mm -hmm. mainly the tone and uh, but yeah, so I don't know if I answered your question. No, you did. Absolutely. Yeah. I never thought of a, a producing director as a nice like insurance policy in being able to hire people who they and networks often will not approve. And if you can basically guarantee their episode, that must be super helpful. It's a little nerve-wracking too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. No, it's but it's, it's the great. same with promoting writers, yeah. you know. Yeah. You basically just have to guarantee their scripts, but it's I, on my end, anyways, it's not nearly as daunting because you're always, you know, well, yeah. adjusting and rewriting. It's it's probably a lot harder to step in and be like, "You are opening up a new access. Please don't do that. That'll be three more setups." <laughs> no, it's true. It is. It's a weird. I mean, TV too. They'll let you get yourself in trouble. You know, yeah. <laughs> they'll let you go. And if you, you run over time, that's not great for the show. And uh, but if you don't get the scene, that's also not great for the show. They, yeah. It might be a show that would rather you run over than not get the scene. It's just it's, every show has a different kind of vibe. And um, but yeah, it is about yeah making sure that you know what the scene is. And uh, but yeah, the uh, yeah bringing in new people. I feel like it, it is starting to change. And they're definitely because they're saying the words. I get to put them on the hook. Like even with the feature that I'm doing now, there were certain things that. I was like, well, here's where you build equity. Here's where you make change. This is where you do the work instead of say the words. And they, they went for it and allowed me to cast certain ways that I really wanted to. So they're on the hook. We just <laughs> got to push them. 
Um, for Kevin, we had uh, Oz uh, Rodriguez do um, the pilot in the second episode, and we wanted to bring him back, and but then he very quickly got a deal with Universal, so we couldn't, and he deserved it, but I was still very bummed. Mm -hmm. And so we had uh, Anna DeCosa ready for the second block, and then you know we were going to figure it out. And very slowly, I was just like, can we, can we keep Anna? Can we just, can we please just keep Anna for the next block? And they was like, yeah. And I kept doing it. So she did, <laughs> of our 16 episodes, did 14 of them. That's awesome. But you it did was, one. I did. I All did right. the oh, series great. finale. See, writers, I think, always seem to not, or be intimidated by the directing. I'm like, you're directing all the time. I, yeah, I, I was like, I don't, no, I don't know how to do that. That's not my, th and also this, is, I'm brand new. I was, you know, a story editor when I sold the show. So I was like, I don't know how to do that. And then one day early on, my script supervisor came to me and said, you need to direct. And I was like, I don't know, Sheila. And she <laughs> said, um, well, you just did it. So you probably should. And I was Really? And she said, yeah, that camera angle you said that you wanted, that's and talking to the actors yeah. the way you do, that's it. And yeah. so I was like, okay, okay, <laughs> okay. And to be able to do like the series finale was yeah. incredible, like probably the best therapy I could have asked for in terms of, you know, Hoping. and like, like getting, uh, like saying goodbye to the show. And, but uh, Anna, yeah, Anna did 16, uh, 14 of the 16, or something, 12 of the 16. And, um, it w I mean, considering it was COVID and like uh, scary and asking people to come to Boston and not do anything, uh, <laughs> she was so on board. She knew the show. She knew both formats. She knew the actors. She was one of the most collaborative people I've ever gotten to work with. She wanted to know what I wanted to feel from a scene. She super cared when I said, can we, can you not have them ad lib that because that steps on something I'm writing four episodes mm -hmm. from now. And that was just invaluable to me. And she was our co-EP on the second season, earned every bit of that title. And uh, yeah, I just, I don't know about working with different people because I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it can, it's fabulous. But, um, but yeah, yeah, Elena did the finale episode for Dickinson season three and uh, it, she was so, she was like, I'm not gonna do it. I was like, you're doing it, you gotta do it. <laughs> She's like, I need you by my side by day two. She's like, I don't need you around me. <laughs> And I was like, I know, I knew you had it. And so it's just, it's the, it's the weird language around, I don't know, it's, it's the holy grail. You know, one thing I really did love when Soloway uh, got nominated for an Emmy for Transparent and was at the DGA. And, uh, you know, they let people come up and speak. This is before, yeah. you know, they won. And uh, <laughs> uh, they were saying, you know, directing is easy. Uh, people doing things I didn't write and didn't direct them to do, that's hard. <laughs> it was just like, so fun to watch these old guys just be like, no, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> that secret is supposed to be well kept. But the thing is, like, the, the story originator is the one who knows the story the most. And so, you know, I think often there's the writer. Yeah, they, they separate the writer from, the, you know, the, the director, and it just, it just adds more distance, potentially, but, yeah. yeah. Let's kind of pull back for a minute and not necessarily maybe talk about your specific shows, but just like, are there other shows that you either maybe are a fan of or can look to or point to that use kind of this like, you know, either going into like another realm or time or mind or some sort of a stylistic device that you think did it really well um, that you're like, man, they nailed that because... Well, I would say, I, I mean, I, especially since wrapping the show, watch everything. I watch everything. Um, and right now, what I really, really love, and it's not exactly like surreal, but I think they use a bunch of different, almost genres in the same, uh, same show so well, is um, Gaslit. I was watching it, and I'm also watching The Offer, not because I like it, uh, but because <laughs> I watch everything. And I, if I was only watching The Offer, I think I would say something as sweeping as, like, we shouldn't make TV about already famous things. Watching characters come up with things we already know is not as enticing as they seem to think it is. And then I, but Gaslit makes me think otherwise. It has, it's so funny. Mostly because Betty Gilpin exists, <laughs> but it's so good, and uh, it's funny. It is intriguing. Uh, I always thought of those um, Watergate burglars or breaking guys as like 
masterminds and they are idiots. And it's so funny watching people realize it. But then there's also an episode where um, uh, Julia Roberts is like held captive in her hotel room essentially. And it's like a horror movie. I mean, it is shot so well and so tense. And I like covered my eyes all in the same show. And I think they do period really, really well. I just, that's the thing I'm like, I guess most into right now. I'm not watching much TV, unfortunately, <laughs> but I'm going to as soon as I finish my, my film. But um, yeah, so I guess the thing I, but I do enjoy using genre and anything as a metaphor, you know, yeah. just any thematic as like, you could have a, a, a movie that's about class that's played as a vampire movie or, you know, in a, in a way you wouldn't know as vampire, you know, it could be just like subtext. And there's a lot of ways to subvert tropes. That's always my thing is, okay, here we think we're going one way. Let's, let's, let's turn that the other way because I do believe we don't have to keep showing the same things even if they're real because there's anomalies that are just as real we just don't show those and uh, so yeah and I and I think surrealness or experimental is not I'm not necessarily an experimental person I just think my lens is a bit it, that way because of whatever my experience is I see cracks in the facade or things that show me that perhaps things are more performative than organic so you know, I think it's out of necessity, and I think that that's kind of something we're talking about. Is like all those tricks are really mm -hmm. character-driven. Like, what does a character need in that moment? What are they willing to do? Or, and how close are we as an audience to them? Is what that function works, you know, serves well. And it, if it doesn't, if it's not that, then I think it's gimmicky, yeah. and you can kind of smell that very, very fast. Oh, yeah. uh, and there is, you know, the worst version of my show is a gimmick. And when I thought of it, I was like, well, that's, that is what that is. What, what's behind it that makes it worthwhile and worth telling? And that's the, that's the hard part. Like that's, because yeah. the, the other part, the other part just makes a good log line. And then beyond that, you got to figure out why it should be longer than a scene and it should be a, yeah. a whole movie or show. Yeah, I mean, humans are very, we're delusional. We're, you know, we're willing to do anything, you know, to hold on to certain ideals that are not true. And I, I find that fascinating. I don't judge it. I actually connect to it. So I think, again, that's maybe how you make it longer lasting is you, you connect to it instead of judge it, you know, or look yeah. at it from afar. I want to, um, you know, we have like 15, 20 minutes. I want to open it up to uh, some questions before we get too far. Down. Yes, right here. Valerie, my question's for you. Um, I really love the show. I've been tracking <laughs> it since like... You're the viewer I have. <laughs> <laughs> He's in the um, front row. I've, I've been tracking it since like 2018, so like I really was waiting for it and like it really just nailed everything I hoped it would be. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask, um, first of all, what was the process assembling your writer's room? Like obviously as you said, like this is meant to be a sitcom and not like a, a sitcom, yeah. wink. Um, but also obviously as you said, like it's also playing in that world of like Breaking Bad or you know, similar genre shows. So I was wondering if you could talk about like, how do you find essentially two writers rooms and make them work cohesively? Yeah, that was, uh, it was a challenge, or I thought it would be a challenge. Uh, I keep saying next time I'm gonna make one show because <laughs> two is very hard. <laughs> but um, I think what we found across the board is people who care about character do not necessarily only live in comedy or drama. And luckily, so many shows go back and forth between. Like, I would hire anybody from Hacks to work on a drama. They know character, you know. Um, but what was most important, we found out, in terms of drama writers, uh, that they didn't look down on comedy. Because a lot of drama writers do because they can't do it. <laughs> and so they sort of sneer at it, especially a sitcom. Um, sitcoms are so hacky by now, but they don't have to be. I would, I gave every writer like a list of shows to watch, a lot of episodes of Frasier. Um, <laughs> we do have Perry Gilpin on Kevin, uh, Kevin Fuck Himself this year, which uh, just, I plopsed, I just <laughs> died that day. She was awesome. Um, because there are great sitcoms and it takes incredible, very, very precise hard writing. Um, so that was for drama. For comedy, I cared that people would be um, vulnerable in the writer's room because a lot of comedy rooms are like, you know, competitive one-upsmanship, stuff like that, which terrifies me. I don't do any of that. I 
a comedy room, I, w I don't think I'd last. Um, <laughs> and so I wanted people who were funny and would make me laugh, but that's not like the point of the room. And I needed them to be able to tell stories that like were hard to tell that maybe they'd never had to in a room before. And the people we found on both sides absolutely did that. Um, and it was really by this, because we had so many writers' rooms, for, it's been so long. Um, but by like the fourth writers' room, we really nailed it <laughs> as to what we wanted. And another thing that I'm proud of that we did is, um, you know, we would promote people, uh, and not just because I think people should be promoted regardless, um, but because they are, our writer's assistant became our staff writer for season two, and that was, you know, that was the chance someone gave me. Uh, on SEAL Team on CBS. Um, <laughs> that was my first writing gig ever. Same show. A lot, yeah, right? A lot of copy that. Um, <laughs> but but that, that gave me my entire career. Um, and so finding people who understood the show, wanting to keep them around, that, I mean, that was true with every department, but definitely with, with the room. And, and don't you find that the writers, you know, the, the new, like, the sh the, sh the networks and the you know streamers need need them as much as they need the job. You know, it's like mm -hmm. to stay relevant and things are changing. It's like it's actually really. I feel like I spend a lot of time just trying to protect you know shows from themselves or protect. They're probably trying to protect me from the show, but <laughs> but you know it goes back and forth. But yeah, it does seem like it's a a really important shift in terms of yeah just keeping relevant with TV. Anybody else have a question for these folks? Yes. Uh, so continuing about genre, I'm wondering if you had decided to yourself before you assembled the room what genre your show was going to be, and if assembling the room, maybe you second-guessed that, or based on which people you assembled, whether they might have tried to like massage it in one direction or another, because these concepts did, could have gone in, in many different directions. So like, how do you decide what genre it should be? Is it based on the material or based on what you like to write? And then how much might that have changed? I went in knowing uh, nothing <laughs> or deciding nothing. I, I think in my head I said, it's a drama with comedic elements because that's what made me feel most safe. Because as I said, comedy rooms scared the hell out of me. Um, and I think it, what we found is like, it kind of depends on the episode. I, I would say that broadly, I think we're a drama masquerading as a comedy. I mean, it's brightly lit. It looks like a sitcom. I spent, you know, half of my life the last five years writing hard sitcom jokes, which I never, ever thought I would. Um, and it was a pleasure. But I think because all of that serves character and serves the single camera portion, which I also try to make funny, just not like, hard joke funny, you know? I, I want people to be weird and people, and I think I, just by nature of where I grew up, I find people hilarious just being who they are. Um, and those are the, the characters I wanted to write and wanted to see. So I, I don't know whether or not, I, I mean, the network was like, are we a comedy or a drama? How do you want to submit? I was like, I, <laughs> submit. But, I, but also, um, <laughs> But uh, I think we're actually in the drama category because I also wanted people to know that like these are it's character based, and I think that that's doing a disservice to comedy. But I, I think that the notions are so antiquated about both that I wanted to make sure people know like I'm I'm trying to tell stories about people I find interesting, not make dick jokes. Yeah, I mean, uh, not only make dick jokes. <laughs> Good distinction. Um, yeah, I would say. Uh, because I was often in the writers' room with Transparent, and they did—they were making a different writers' room, and that's part of how I got in. Is some of my friends were brought on who had no TV writing experience, were poets and depressive comedians, and um, <laughs> you know, really, uh, you know, comedy is higher stakes, not lower stakes, and uh, and so that was really cool to see. And and uh, and then with Dickinson, definitely it was a very well thought out in terms of the different voices. We had Lynn Nottage in the room, and. Um, you know, new new writers uh, who wrote, you know, one person was hired because they wrote a spec script for Dickinson and actually got oh, hired. Wow. I know, which it's never so happens. That never so happens. Good. And, uh, you know, so it was really, I love that mix. I love the, like, new and the experience and the different points of view. 
And you know, when I did my first episode on Transparent, instead of my buddy, I was paired with this guy. I'm like, oh, we're like totally opposite. This is gonna be terrible. And uh, we're we're BFFs since, you know. And it's really like those different points of view in a room is what I think is really beneficial because if it's a good room, you're gonna bring up the things that the show needs. And so yeah, yeah. Anybody else have a question? Yes. I was just curious for both of you, because both of these ideas are so cool, but at every phase of moving forward, you can see the look on people's faces of being like, oh, that's really weird. <laughs> and how did you sort of keep like committed to the idea that like, no, we're really, for you got for Dickinson, we're really tethered to the poems and to her interior life, and we actually don't care about what you think the 1860s were like, or we're really committed to telling the story this way to not have the edges shaved off when you were meeting other people's sort of like, sort of discomfort with how, you said weird earlier, but in a way how weird yeah. it is to move the envelope forward. So. Which I'm thrilled about. Where's my brand, totally. I remember like deep into the first season, I was like, how many times do I have to defend the soul of the show? I thought I'd done it for the last time, like six months ago. And you you have to do it a lot until you kind of have, for me, it was like a cut. Once there was a cut and people saw what I had hoped would make sense, um, that's when it it really kind of sunk in and that's when I didn't have to have those conversations what felt like every week and I don't blame anybody for having those conversations with me because there's a lot of money on the line <laughs> and they want to make sure it works and you know a, a no I get often is like can you cut down the multicam can you like put Kevin in single camera it's like well what's the show can you tell me what the show is if we take That's that out rule, though, because right? no you just have to it has to be uh, earned like like I didn't just throw Neil in the single camera for fun there's right. like a reason in my brain that that's why he is in it now did you know that that was where it was going no originally uh the first season ended with him dying in that scene wow. uh and then we cast <laughs> <laughs> wow you guys have actually maybe you should have done um uh no and then we cast Alex Bonifer who is one of those guys who, like, if you watch Friends, you get to, you realize, like, oh, my God, those actors did so much of the work for them. Like, and they did beautiful writing, too. But, I mean, Chandler makes a look, and you get a laugh. And it's like, oh, God, I just get to write? Chandler does a look? <laughs> That's great. Like that, And Alex is that guy. And so early on, Craig, my co-showrunner, and I, he was like, Valerie, we can't kill him off. And I was like, yes, we can. I, it's good. That's what's been in my brain for three years. He's like, okay. But I'm telling you, we would do Zoom table reads and he would, uh, during the pandemic, just to like keep in touch and he would kill it. And he'd be like, Valerie. I'd be like, I'm, uh, it's a good end. And then I said, fine. If I can think of an end that I like as much, then maybe. And also, when it became clear, like, we might actually get a second season, none of us wanted a dead body sh season. I hate a dead body. It's the worst. It, it's, like, I'm just waiting for them to get caught, and then it's the worst. And so it's like, okay. And I sat down, and I was like, that's better. It's better, and I don't have to tell an actor he's not coming back. Um, and so when we talked to Alex, like, in our preseason, just chat about what season one would be, uh, we were like, by the way, you're supposed to die at the end of this, but you're so good that we couldn't. He cried. He is the sweetest, and watching him just come to life in single camera this year was a joy. I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> The, the question was about the weirdness oh, yeah. and like constant like selling people over and over again no, that I, it's going to work. Yeah, no, it does work. Um, I've I've been fortunate enough to work on a couple of weird shows that have been impactful, or if that's a word, like Transparent for Amazon. It definitely put them on the map, and they never did a show like that after. And Dickinson also was a, a kind of important show, even though they had bigger shows because it, it was the only one that got consistent good reviews. Mm -hmm. And then I do have to be a little bit negative in that I don't see them make those same decisions again. I think they, they do it because they don't know the rules, and yeah. so that's exciting. They're like, bring us something we haven't seen, and then they get success, and then it seems like they just want to get some dragons in a show yeah. <laughs> and make a lot of money. But you know that'll change. I don't want to be 
And, uh, but a new it, network will happen, and they'll do interesting things again. Yeah. yeah. No, and, and actually, yeah. yeah. To be fair, all the, the places that I've worked for have been decent and really they hear things. It's not the same, you know, it's not the thing you would think, which is just crushing the soul yeah. of the filmmaker show creator. I have a quick follow-up. For the pitch, did you have anything visual in the pitch? I have the most annoying story of how I oh sold God. this show. Oh, God. Were so, you, like, in a supermarket and no, you got not discovered? Quite. Not quite. I was a writer on SEAL Team. Uh, right. my, copy that. My old, yeah, copy that. <laughs> Over now. Uh, my <laughs> old boss, I finished there. My old boss, Amy Lippman, uh, asked me to... Oh, it's with her? You did? Sold the show with her. <laughs> um, she uh, was a real champion of mine and asked me to come be in an AMC mini room of hers as a writer and AMC was like who's that she's worked on SEAL team we should let's at least meet her and so I had a general where you know you just drink water and talk about where you're from and make jokes about trashy Connecticut and um, <laughs> two hours before the meeting my manager brand new manager called me and said um so I guess they just read your script. Now the meeting's about buying Kevin. Do you have anything prepared? And I was like, no, Brandy. This is my third meeting ever. I have nothing prepared for a series. And she's like, great. I expect this to happen no. to you. <laughs> no. She was like, great, go have fun. <laughs> and so I sat. My, my meeting was supposed to be with one person. Suddenly it was with four. A room full of women, which was amazing. And I remember a, a woman, Carrie, who's now, I'm very, I love her so much, but she said, so um, what do you see for the second season? And I said, um, I don't know, maybe you throw like another uh, format in there, maybe, I mean, I don't know, like local access or something. And she's like, she literally said, yeah, I was afraid you were gonna say something like that. And I was like, great, I'll go fuck myself, thank you so much for meeting with me. And then, oh, this is the most annoying story, three weeks later, it was my first night ever in Paris. And I got a call. This is a terrible story. I got a call from my whole team, brand new team. And usually that means you're fired. And I wasn't on anything at the moment. And they were, they said, so AMC wants to put in an offer on Kevin. And I was like, stop. What? what? An you're offer? Like I was standing like under the money? Eiffel Tower at the moment. And, uh, you know, throughout that whole process, for months later, I wrote, like, the format on my own and had a great time, like a, a series Bible. And the whole time, people are like, so when can I see it? And I was like, oh, it'll never get made. <laughs> it'll never get made. Uh, and somehow it got made. Wow. I I it's story. awful. It's <laughs> amazing. It'll never happen that way again. Yeah. I have many unmakeable shows, and so far they've not been made. <laughs> it could be made. Just, just piss off someone in a general, and apparently you can get a show made. Oh, yeah, that definitely. They like when you uh, say, I got my first writing job by saying, this is an impossible <laughs> thing to adapt. Yeah. And uh, they're like, you're hired. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's great. We'll all leave remembering that story. <laughs> Anybody else have a question for these two? Oh, you got, oh, eh. Commit! I have a short question. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier you made a list of sitcom episodes yeah. to, to give to your writing staff. Is there a way I could access that <laughs> list? Um, I'll ask my brother to tweet it. I'm not on any social media, go. but um, I would say uh, there's a French farce episode of Frasier that I tell everyone to watch. It's called, um, I think, The Two Mrs. Cranes. I think it's season four, episode one. I'm not positive about that. Um, but it's, it's, they did French farce so, so well, uh, and it's what we referenced a lot when talking about our sixth episode of, of Kevin. So we, I grew up in these, like, Norman Lear, Lear. Yeah, where it's like sitcom covered everything. It covered, you know, religion, oh, yeah. abortion, yeah. race, class, like, that was a sitcom. Yeah. So, um, I think last week it was announced that Aaron Hayes is going to be in the second season of the show, which brings this very full circle is there anything that you can reveal about her involvement, or is you're, you're drink, you're, I'm asking, I'm taking the opportunity because you do have a drink in your hand, so. I think I can say this confidently that it doesn't give anything away. She's in the series finale. She's in our finale. And was amazing. I loved working with her so much. Well, guys, we have to wrap it up. This was so fun and fascinating. Thank, Thank you. you both so much. Yeah. And great audience as well. Thank you for your questions.
You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas, between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.